0: well let's look again at psalm 78 our psalm of the month psalm 78 I'm going to read verses 42 through 72 this is the second half of the psalm give or take not quite half a little less than half this is the second half of his story hear again the words of Asaph the words of Christ they did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the enemy, when he worked his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zoan, turned their rivers into blood and their streams that they could not drink. He sent swarms of flies among them, which devoured them, and frogs, which destroyed them. He also gave their crops to the caterpillar and their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. He also gave up their cattle to the hail and their flocks to fiery lightning. He cast on them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, indignation, and trouble by sending angels of destruction among them. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave their life over to the plague and destroyed all the firstborn in Egypt the first of their strength in the tents of Ham, But he made his own people go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And he led them on safely so that they did not fear. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies, and he brought them to his holy border, this mountain which his right hand had acquired. He also drove out the nations before them, allotted them, an inheritance by survey, and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. Yet they tested and provoked the Most High God, and did not keep His testimonies, but turned back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow. For they provoked Him to anger with their high places, and moved Him to jealousy with their carved images, When God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had placed among men, and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. He also gave his people over to the sword and was furious with his inheritance The fire consumed their young men, and their maidens were not given in marriage. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a mighty man who shouts because of wine, and he beat back his enemies. He put them to a perpetual reproach. Moreover, he rejected the tent of Joseph, He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth, which he has established forever. He also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes that that had young. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people and Israel his inheritance so he shepherded them shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands amen and amen as a lover of history i love this song As a lover of history, I recently completed a documentary on Ben Franklin and a biography of Theodore Roosevelt. And these two men who loom large over American history have a lot in common. They were extraordinarily accomplished, gifted at nearly everything they did. Intellectually successful, politically successful, financially successful. They traveled the world, they had this global network of friends and of allies. They built up fabulous wealth that they left for generations to come. These two great figures at the very end of their lives were each asked in different terms, of all your accomplishments, of all your successes, what do you love most? They both gave the same answer. Telling stories to my grandkids. That was their answer. What is it like to become president of the United States? What is it like to negotiate with France, the foundation of a brand new country, the United States? What is it like to work out the U.S. Constitution? Here are two great men who have reached the very apex of human achievement. And you know what they love most? Telling stories to their grandkids. Now there's something to this. In Psalm 78, Asaph is deep in meditation. He's contemplating. He's thinking about the wonderful works of God. And as he thinks about God's wonderful works, he realizes these are stories. Stories that have to pass from one generation to the next. That that the old must learn To become storytellers. And the young must learn to be story listeners. So that the stories of God's wonderful works could pass from generation to generation. The good news for us today is that God does wonderful work. And God does wonderful works. The command of God for us today is that we should tell His stories to our kids. Not just the ones we gave birth to. Not just the ones we gave birth to who gave birth to them. I mean, all the covenant kids. Let us be a storytelling people. Telling God's stories. With this in mind, let's go through Psalm 78. Obviously not every last detail. I can't do it. And I don't think you can either. Let's dig in first, verses 1 through 8. It sets the the table. Asaph says to us, Give ear to my law. Literally in the Hebrew, my instruction. Incline your ear to the words of my mouth. That is to say, Asaph is about to sing a psalm that is intended to instruct us, that is intended to explain something to us. This is unusual because in the very next verse he says, I will speak a parable which is something hard to understand. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning in which that heavenly meaning is not at all apparent. Jesus told parables. A sower went out to sow. He sowed some seed. Some of it grew like this. Some of it grew like that. And all the disciples say, okay, what are you talking about? Until Jesus hands them a key. Until Jesus gives them a clue. The sower is the son of God. The seed is the word of God. The soil are the hearts of the hearers. But without that key, the story makes no sense at all. Likewise, Asaph says, I'm going to utter dark sayings of old. Mysteries. Riddles. Riddles. Things that are obscure and hard to understand. So immediately we have this contrast. Asaph says, I'm going to give you a psalm that's going to explain things for you so that you understand. And I'm going to do it by telling you stories where the meaning is not immediately apparent. I'm going to give you riddles where you're going to have to puzzle out the solution. You're going to need the clue. You're going to need the key to unlock and to interpret these parables and these riddles. These are ones that have passed down through the generations, verses 3 and 4. The reason Asaph has put this psalm together is because he's got it from his fathers, and he wants to give it to his children. That the church should own as its responsibility every generation to receive the stories of our fathers And to tell them to our children that from generation to generation, this is our job. To know the parables and the riddles that reveal God. This idea that the instruction or the words, the meaning of the parables, the meaning of the riddles, is a revelation of God is in verse 4. Telling the generations to come, the praises, strength and wonderful works of the Lord. That is to say that I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story that's really a parable. It's an earthly story, but it has a heavenly meaning. It's a riddle. It's going to look like it is a story that consists of one topic, but it's really about a different topic. And unless you have that key, unless you have that clue, you can't go from the earthly story, the dark riddle, the real heavenly bright meaning. But that real heavenly bright meaning. Is going to be God. It's going to be the praises of God. The strength of God. The wonderful works of God. So I'm going to tell you a story. And it's meaning. It's true meaning. Is going to be. God is worthy of your worship. God is strong and great. And God has wonderful works. He's done wonderful works. Asaph is doing this according to verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 for three reasons. First, it's commanded by God in verse 5. He established a testimony. He appointed a law. He commanded that they should make it known. Asaph is probably reflecting back in Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 6. We are told that the law recorded in Deuteronomy 5 was actually given at Mount Sinai to that first generation of Israelites coming up out of Egypt. But in Deuteronomy 4, Moses claims that that law actually belongs to the second generation of Israel. In an immediate way. In other words, these stories and these songs, these laws, these words of God, belong to the living. They are never archaic. They never pass into legend or myth or lore. It is a living and active Word. And every new generation has the responsibility to receive this Word. And every passing generation has the responsibility to give this Word. We share these stories about God's wonderful works because God has commanded His Word to live with the living. But secondly, it's so that that next generation might live in faith, hope, and love. He says in verse 6 that they might know the words of God, the stories of God, the parables and riddles of God. That they might arise and declare them to their children. Isn't this an extraordinary pattern? Why is it so important that I sat with my parents as they told me stories about God's wonderful works? So that I can sit with my children and tell them stories about God's wonderful works so that one day they can sit with their children and tell them the stories of God's wonderful works that the word of God might be alive in every generation that comes that the word of God might be more than memory but a living and identity defining reality I tell the story again and again From parent to child, from generation to generation. Verse 7 that they might set their hope in God. So that my children might hope in the God that my parents hoped in. That from generation to generation, we might trust this God and not forget his works, but live like he's in this world, live like he's in this church live like he's in this person. That he does wonderful work in spite of what the story sounds like. In spite of what the story looks like. That they might keep his commandments. That they might obey God, do the will of God, be conformed to the image of God, which is in Christ, righteousness and holiness. It is for this purpose that Asaph gives Psalm 78 to the church, you and me. That we should not only have this psalm, but this psalm as a pattern. So that we should tell these stories to our children, and indeed all God's stories to our children. That our children might learn how to see and hear the stories of this world and know what is really happening in them. For all the world's stories are a parable. For all the world's history is a riddle. And all of humanity has sat down and said, what is the meaning of life? They're looking for the key. They're looking for the clue. And we have it. What unlocks the mystery of these stories? What turns this parable we call life Into something meaningful and real. Well, we're not there yet. We're given a final reason to do this to embrace this vision of our church, to embrace this vision of our life, to become storytellers who tell stories of God's wonderful works in our lives, in the lives of our fathers, to our children and grandchildren. I love this reason that they may not be like their fathers. A stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. I love this reason for storytelling for two reasons. The first is, it speaks to me. As a father, I recognize my stubbornness and my rebellion and my crooked heart in this verse. And I long for children who are more righteous than I am, who sin less than I do, who love Jesus more than I do. The other reason I love this verse is it gives us the key and the clue. We're going to hear a story. And we're going to become storytellers. And here's the story. I'm a sinner. Stubborn and rebellious of wicked and wayward heart. That's the story. Can you see how it's a parable? Can you see how it's a riddle? Can you see how if you don't have the key or the clue... You don't get the meaning or moral of the story from that. Because the other half of the story, as we'll see, is Jesus is a great savior. And that's actually the story that's playing out in my life and in yours. He's doing wonderful work. He's saving sinners, of whom I am chief Let's look at some of these stories. And this is where I have to move speedily. I've laid that foundation. My hope is that with that kind of. Sort of theology and framework in your mind. That uh, again. This afternoon. After you've done all the other things we've told you to do. You could go through Psalm 78 on your own. Maybe this week. Maybe this month. It is the Psalm of the month. And you could meditate on some of the stories. That I can't go into in depth here. That allow you to. Open up your imagination, your, your your heart to understand how these stories illustrate the great truth. That in earth, it's a story of a sinful, wicked people. But in heaven, it's a story of a merciful Savior. Let's begin with verses 9 through 11. A story of battle. Imagine a church armed and equipped with the latest, greatest state-of-the-art tools and weapons. You know, like a bow and arrow in the days of Ephraim. They turn back in battle. How could this be? How could the wealthiest, most well-equipped, most well-off church in the world lose in battle? Well, it's all too easy, isn't it? We see it too often. They do not keep covenant with God. They refuse to walk in His law. They forgot His works and His wonders that He had shown to them. The church, in equipping themselves with the greatest weapons in the world, actually in violation of Deuteronomy 17, but that's a different sermon, they lose sight of the fact that they exist to have a relationship with God. Here's the earthly story God's people acquire all the latest, greatest, and most elite technology and tools and fail. Here's the heavenly reality. Because you exist to glorify and enjoy God. To live in covenant with Him. Not to be the latest and greatest institution on earth. We can't compete with the world institution to institution. But we have God. We live with Him. He loves us. He gives us covenant, law, works, and wonders. Do you see the tension? Consider this story. Imagine being a church in the wilderness, not equipped with the latest and greatest technology, not having all the wealth and the resources of the world, but rather in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, they faced two poetically contrasting problems. I'm looking at verses 12 through 20 here. The first is they approach the Red Sea, and the Egyptian army is bearing down on them. And it is a death sandwich. If they stay on the beach, the Egyptians will kill them. If they leave the beach, they will drown in the Red Sea. There is death behind them and there is death in front of them. They're dead. God parts the Red Sea. And they go through on dry land. According to Asaph, the very next problem is they're on dry land and there's no water. Do you guys see the genius of Asaph's poetry? All right, we have two problems. The one is there's a whole lot of water and I can't get across it. What's God do? He parts the water and I go through on dry land. Okay, there's a whole lot of dry land and I can't get any water. What does he do? He parts the rock and out comes water. Do you see the genius of God? Too much water. That's all right, I'll part it. Too much rock. That's all right, I'll part it. And in either split, out comes life. Now that's the earthly story. What's the heavenly meaning? He hung on a cross and he poured the temple veil in two. And when he divided that temple veil, when he divided the flesh of his body, death fled. Away and we walk through into eternal life, and we walk through life to life everlasting. This is what God is doing in our world, working wonders. So that even in these little stories stories of water we should see the wonderful works of God, the salvation of Jesus Christ. Now, imagine again a church in the wilderness. This time not struggling with the abundance of water of Red Sea, nor struggling with this living water coming from the rock that is Christ. Imagine a church in the wilderness full of appetite and ambition. Those who, having gone through the dry land between the sea, escaped death. Those who have drunk the living water that came from the rock, everlasting life, are there in the wilderness... And they say, oh, but can God give me a table? Can can he iron out the cloth and set it over the table? Can he put out bread and wine and can he feed us in abundance? Asaph, again, with poetic genius, marvels at God's response. He gives them exactly what they want. They are full of craving and full of ambition and full of desire. And it's deadly. He gives them exactly what they want. He sends manna, bread from heaven, angels' food. He sends quail like the sand of the sea, birds that fly into the camp and land and say, Here I am, eat me. He feeds them like a loving father in the midst of the wilderness. And they gratify their desires. This is verses 29 and 30. They snatch up the animals and they stuff them in their mouths. And and while their teeth are biting into the flesh of the quail, the stoutest among them die. For in meeting this craving, in fulfilling this desire, he was not acting in mercy toward them. But in justice... Is this what you want, my people? Here. And it brings death. How much more is this our experience? That we as an earthly church live in this story. Sometimes a story of deprivation, of poverty and oppression and of need. And we look for water. We look for life. And the story is you'll find it in Jesus. But sometimes it's full of appetite and ambition and desire. And it's even gratified. I want that. I long for that. I seek that. And he gives it to me. Only to my destruction and death. Let me give you a very timely illustration. If you do not have faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have not professed faith in Jesus Christ to these elders, don't eat this bread and don't drink this cup. Or you will be like your fathers, whose mouths were full of food, but whose hearts were not full of faith. And they died. This is the story. That God should tell us this story that we should learn from him to have faith in him. To not live by our earthly desires and appetites and ambitions. To not have our story run and be runned. That's not the right way to say that. And be, never mind, I'm going to move on. And not have our lives organized, governed, and driven. By our desires and ambitions. This is the story he is telling us. Now imagine a church, a church defeated in battle, a church thirsty in the wilderness, a church craving and coveting and desiring. Worse still, verses 32 through 39 imagine a church deceiving and lying. In spite of all this, in spite of the fact that they had these stories and experiences, in spite of the fact that they were surrounded by the means of grace, they were drinking water from the rock, they were eating bread from heaven, they were eating the quail, in which was the flesh, the life that they needed. In spite of having Jesus everywhere present, communicated to them in these Old Testament sacraments and experiences, still they sinned. And did not believe his wondrous works. Does that sound familiar? In spite of some fantastic pews. In spite of some great stained glass windows. In spite of sermon after Sunday after Sunday. In spite of family worship and private worship. In spite of all this grace. By which they are fed and nourished and cared for. And every need is met. They did not believe his wondrous works. Do you know what torments your elders? Do you know what torments your parents? A longing for you to believe in the wondrous works of God. To believe that he does wonderful works. Instead, what often happens in the church is that they return and seek God earnestly. Verse 34 they remember he's the rock. They remember he's the redeemer. But verse 35, 6, they flatter and lie. Their hearts are not steadfast, nor were they faithful. This is the earthly story. It is the earthly story again and again of the church. We see it of the first generation. They witness his miracles in Egypt, and they die in the wilderness. We see it in the second generation. They witness his wonders in the wilderness, and they perish in the land of promise. And we see it with us. That on to this day we see the wonderful works of God, but we do not embrace God himself. And in so doing, we miss the whole forest for the trees. We miss the whole meaning for the story. We miss the reality that each and every one of these Old Testament stories are giving us God. God as our rock. God as our redeemer. That he is the bread from heaven. That's what Jesus says of himself. That he is the flesh in which there is life. That's what he says of himself in John 6. That he is the living water that flowed from the rock. That's what he tells the woman at Sychar. That he is indeed the living water from which springs of living water grow up these stories tell us about Jesus and so it is in verse 38 and 39 that he is full of compassion and forgiveness and turns away his anger and has mercy on them we live in this world where there is these two great ends to the story i'm a sinner And he's a savior. We are sinners. But we have a savior. He is full of compassion. Forgiving and turning away of his wrath. These truths are at labor in our stories. These truths are working out his wonderful works. Now. That's half the song. That's half the story. But. We're almost out of time. So we have to cover the rest of this with these visions and ideas in mind. Notice the summary statement. They provoked him in the wilderness. They grieved him in the desert. Again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. This is what happens when we confuse the storyteller with the story subject. We limit God We fold him up and we stick him in our pockets. This is a God who I exist to be manipulated by me. That I am to pray to him in order to get from him what I want. That I am to go to worship in order to achieve some sort of psychological satisfaction. That I am to gather with God's people in order to check some box and fulfill some righteous command. And story after story after story... We heap up these earthly evils into our very covenant relationship with God, limiting Him, tempting Him, testing Him. And He responds with forgiveness. And He responds with mercy. We do not remember His power, verse 42, that He redeemed us from the enemy. The next story that Asaph gives leaps back to the very beginning of the story down in Egypt. He recounts the great plagues, how God takes on the gods of Egypt. And one by one, he destroys the pantheon of Egyptian gods. He ruins all their false gods, and he leads them out safely like sheep. He brings them to the sea, verse 53. That was the beginning of the story back in verse 12. And he brings them to the holy border. That's the promised land. The mountain acquired with his Acquired with his right hand, that's Zion in Jerusalem. Allotted by inheritance by survey under Joshua, tribes dwelling in tents in the land of promise. Asaph, in bringing together this last story, is not only bringing us to the origin, and so reminding us of this great principle. Every single story is really one big story. I'm a sinner, he's a savior. I have a story about our travels this week. What's the moral of the story? I'm a sinner, he's a savior. I have a story from my job this week. What's the moral of the story? I'm a sinner, he's a savior. This is the heavenly truth embedded in every earthly story. That all things exist in him, through him, and for him. The him being Jesus. He is the dry land between the seas of death. He is the rock in the wilderness from which water flowed. He's the water from the rock that flowed. He's the bread from heaven. He's the quail. He is the God who conquered the gods of Egypt and drove them out. And it is pressing to this point, the centrality and superiority of Jesus, that he is the wonderful works of God in this earth that Asaph now moves. They were, he says, testers and provokers of God who did not keep his testimonies, unfaithful like a bow. This harkens back to Ephraim. I skip that story briefly because it returns now to that story. Ephraim draws up a bow and loses in battle. What historical event is this? We're not totally sure. The scholars disagree. But if you with me imagine that this bow and arrow defeat of Ephraim mentioned in the beginning of the psalm now comes into being here with the people acting like a twisted bow that can't shoot a straight arrow, and God's wrath is visited on Shiloh, then it is referring to the destruction of Eli and his sons and the capturing of the Ark of the Covenant that the strength and glory of God in verse 61 passed into the hands of the enemy. That is the Ark of the Covenant. And his people fall to the sword. And they are, with the fury of his inheritance, his fire consumes the young men. They lose in battle. The maidens are not given to marriage because all the young men are dead on the battlefield. The priests fall by the sword, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli. But Eli himself falls by the roadside and dies. The widow does not mourn. She gives birth, and with her dying breath, she names her son Ichabod. The glory has departed. This is the earthly story. What a tragic ending. If we were dividing out the great stories of the Old Testament, we, along the lines of Shakespeare, we should call it a tragedy. It ends in a horrible place. In which death has come to God's people. Defeat has come to God's people. And the glory has departed. By the way, Israel is suffering dead young men, unwed young maidens, widows who aren't mourning, and priests who are dead. And the glory and strength has departed. By the way, what's happening to the glory and strength down in the temple of Dagon? Dagon. The glory and strength of God is undiminished and unstained. He's destroying the Philistines. There's more to the story than what we see with the eyes of earth and flesh. And this is what Asaph leads us to in verses 65 and following. The Lord awoke is from a sleep like a many man who shouts because of wine. He beats back his enemy and puts them to perpetual reproach. Our God is alive and active. He comes like a champion in the day of battle to defeat our enemies. He comes like a champion in the wilderness to bring water from a rock. He comes like a champion at the Red Sea to split death and to break open the grave and to say, here is everlasting life. He comes like a champion to deliver us and save us. He works wonderfully. He rejects the tent of Joseph, that honored son of Jacob, who gets a double blessing as if he were the firstborn. He does not choose the tribe of Ephraim, the blessed younger son of Joseph, who had so many offspring. But rather he chose the tribe of Judah, the one in whom Mount Zion lived. He chose that tribe and set his home, his dwelling on the holy heights. And there he brought in his servant David. David, the youngest of his father's house. David, the keeper of sheep, who walked behind... Notice the poetry again. I love the poetry of this. David follows. So the sentence begins with David. David follows. The youths, you know, who follow the rams, who have babies behind them. David is not only the youngest of his brothers. David is not only the one left behind in 1 Samuel. He is actually... Behind the babies, behind the mothers, behind the rams. He is in the lowest possible position. They took him from that position and made him the leader of all his people. And shepherded them with the integrity of his heart. And guided him with the skillfulness of his hands. This David is the one to whom this story is going. Asaph is sitting back for a moment... And he's surveying the great story of Israelite history from Egypt to Jerusalem. And as he goes from Zion to Zion, he grasps the moral of the story. The heavenly reality. God is bringing into this world a great king. And he will be born with the sheep. And he will be beneath the lowest Baby sheep living in its trough for that first night. But he will lead his people. He will fulfill all the stories. He will give meaning to our lives and meaning to our world. He is the shepherd in whom there is integrity of heart, he is the shepherd with skillful hands. Asaph didn't know that part of the story. It ends here. And we know what follows, don't we? David, the great king, gives way to Solomon, who did not have integrity of heart. Solomon went after other gods and lost the kingdom. Both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, now divided, go after other gods. And lose their kingdoms. This is the earthly story: exile, slavery, wilderness, defeat in battle, and all of it sums up in in Jesus comes and Jesus saves. In these stories which we suffer, in these stories about which we sing, we experience and recount and remember the salvation of our God, that He works wonders for us. That He works wonders in this world. Let us tell these stories to our children. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful psalm. So full and rich with detail and imagery and poetry and history. So much, Father, beyond my poor capacity to preach, beyond our capacity to hear. And so we pray what little we have said and heard we would receive with faith and with joy. Having the eyes of our hearts opened to know how to see our lives and the lives of one another. To read the work of God in Christ in the world and in history and in us. We pray, Father, that you would grant us this grace. To speak of Jesus one to another in our daily lives. And to speak of what he is doing in us and through us. To prayerfully read in the scriptures the truths about him that inform our story that we might know who you are and what you are doing. We give you thanks for this blessing, Father, of this song, and ask that it would enrich our lives to the praise of your name. For in that name we pray. Amen.